like to invite you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, and then back up one verse. We're going to start reading in verse 38 of chapter 3 this morning, Luke chapter 4. We've been looking at the temptations of Jesus Christ in the wilderness in the last couple of weeks. Um, two weeks ago, we considered the fact that Jesus Christ faced these temptations as a human being. These were real temptations. This was not a charade. He was facing these as a human being. And um, it was kind of a, a face-off with the devil. We're going to talk a little more about that this morning in some detail. Also, um, last week we looked at the nature of the temptations and brought out the reality that all of us face temptation in the same way. No matter how you uh, kind of slice and dice the temptations, they come down to three avenues. There are three gates, if you please, that, that appeal to us. Uh, and the enemy is always coming through one of those three, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. And you know how Jesus was asked the question, um, what, it, what are the greatest commandments? And Jesus was able to summarize the whole law of God in two commandments. He said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. And the second is similar, uh, love your neighbor as you love yourself. James actually boiled it down even further by saying the royal law is the law of love. That's the bottom line. And uh, Jesus made it plain that the summation of all the commandments was found in those two foundational commandments. Well, you can similarly uh, boil temptation down. And uh, if you look at temptation, it fits into one of those categories. The lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, the boastful pride of life, whatever avenue or particular thing it takes, it fits in one of the three. And if you want to boil it down further, I can give you uh, two words that kind of summarize uh, all the temptation. Pride and unbelief. When you, when you get to the very bottom line, it is our pride. I did it my way. I want to have my ideas. I want to get my thing done. That pride of life that says, I, I want to uh, be the one in charge. And unbelief ultimately says, I don't believe God has my best interest at heart. I don't believe what he says is true. I don't believe he really loves me. Um, and therefore, I'm going to look for an alternative. Those two summarize all of the temptations. Well, this morning, I want to go back to this uh, particular event. And I want to look at, uh, in our final study, which is by no means exhaustive at all, but I want to look at the um, nature of Jesus facing off with the devil as a, as a type of Adam, as the second man, the last Adam, and how this particular uh, event in his life was the opening salvo in a ministry to bring the kingdom of God to this earth and to recover what was lost for the glory of Jesus Christ. Verse uh, 38, the son of Enosh, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. You know, we did not go over the genealogy in detail, but you'll recognize that this is the last verse in Luke's genealogy. 
uh, Matthew takes us back to prove that Jesus was uh, a Jewish son born of David. Basically, he wants us to see his relationship to the nation of Israel. Luke wants us to understand that Jesus goes all the way back to Adam, as it were, and is representative of the human race. And it is not by accident. We didn't uh, have chapter divisions when Luke wrote his uh, gospel. Those have been added for our convenience. And so when you go all the way back, um, this was a seamless uh, kind of flow right into this wilderness experience. That first Adam who was created by God and placed on this planet to uh, manifest the glory of God, as as Charlie reminded us this morning from Genesis chapter 1. Subdue it, have dominion over the earth, demonstrate uh, my glory, uh, show who you are. I made this whole thing for you, and I want you under my lordship to uh, have rule and authority over the earth and to manifest my glory to every corner of the globe. Um, Now, Adam lost that opportunity through his rebellion. But Jesus Christ is going to recover it as the last Adam, the second man. So, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan as was led around by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you're the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him and said, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it has been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship me, it shall all be yours. I'm going to stop there. And I want to draw attention to the fact that Jesus did not challenge the devil in this broad statement that he has made. He did not say, you're a liar and the father of lies and You've been a liar from the beginning. You don't have authority over the kingdoms of the earth. He doesn't challenge him at all. You know, the devil is a liar, and he is the father of lies. But sometimes he tells the truth. He tells the truth if it serves his purposes to ensnare. You remember in the third temptation in Luke, he quoted scripture. The devil quoted scripture. He says, it is written. Uh, He will give his angels charge over you concerning you to bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. That's a true statement. It's right out of the word of God. And the devil will always quote scripture to you if it will serve his purpose in taking it out of context, misapplying it, and leading you to a false conclusion. Has God really said what he meant was, or what he knows is, And it's that kind of thing. When the devil said, the kingdoms of the world and their domain and glory have been handed over to me, he was not telling a lie. What Adam and Eve did not realize when they disobeyed God and sinned 
is that they gave up their rightful place as the representatives of God on this planet, as those who have dominion and authority. They gave that position up. And the devil, by uh, deceit and half-truths, wrested it from them so that he literally took that authority away from them, not under the lordship of God, but under his own evil scheming devices to destroy and ruin the creation that God had made. If you look at your outline this morning, I'm going to tell you in advance, uh, I am not going to go over the details of the first two points in any great depth, because for one thing, you've heard a lot of this before. I've uh, preached on these subjects in times past, and I've given you a lot of scripture references. So I, I, I want you to do some homework this week and go home and study this and ferret it out, because I, if I go over every detail, we'll be lost. <laughs> we'll never get done. I have about two hours worth of sermon here. But um, what I do want to leave you with in the first point is, who has authority over the earth now? And the answer to that question is, the devil does. He is the one who, according to the scriptures, the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. The whole world lies in the evil one. He is the small g God of this earth. And one of the things that is really, really hard for us to understand, it's really, really hard for us to understand, One of the things that is really, really hard for us to get in our minds. I want you to know this is really hard. This is really hard. Okay, we have a hard time keeping hold of this fact. There are only two kinds of people on the planet. Only two kinds of people. Those whose sins are forgiven, who have come under the Lordship of Jesus Christ, and have eternal life, and those who have not. Those are the only two kind of people on this planet. And Jesus said that the person who is not for me is against me. Now, I'm not suggesting to you for a heartbeat that, that uh, we suddenly look at everybody that is outside of uh, the Christian realm as the enemy and, and, and hate these people. By no means. We, too, were once one of them. We walked in darkness, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We were in the same situation. They're not any different than we were. In some cases, than we are, in a sense, because we haven't had our minds open to the truth of, of what life is really all about. Our commandment is to love those without Jesus Christ, to truly love them from the heart, because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. It's the love of God that motivates him with the message of the gospel. It's the love of God that constrains us to proclaim the gospel. So I'm not suggesting that we uh, treat unbelievers with animosity. But we need to have our minds open and our eyes open and our hearts aware. There's only two kinds of people. There's no such thing as neutral territory. There's no such thing as a true humanist. 
That is, someone who is entirely independent of any supernatural influence and working for the good and betterment of humankind. There is no such thing. Those who think they are are blinded by the God of this world who has blinded the minds of unbelievers. We need to have our eyes opened. And we need to recognize this morning that every government, every parliament, every congress, every leader, every local (coughs) chamber, every local neighborhood association, every educational institution, every college, every university, every high school, every junior high, every elementary school, every principal, every teacher, every assistant principal, every business, every corporation, every institution on this planet is under the dominion of Antichrist, the devil. Every one of them. Unless, unless, there is a faithful follower of Jesus Christ who is having an influence in in serving or leadership within that institution. Only as we bring the light of Christ and the salt and light into these environments can we make a difference. And that difference is not to be a militant kind of difference. It's not to be a confrontational, in-your-face kind of difference. It's to be salt. It's to be light. It's to bring illumination and the savor and the aroma of Jesus Christ uh, around us in the love of God. But we need to have our eyes opened so that we're not deceived. The surprising thing is not that courts and judgments and governments and institutions fail us with ungodly, uh, self-centered behavior. The amazing thing is that they ever succeed at all. There is a vestige of the image of God in every person that creeps out occasionally. And yet, the scripture says, the heart of man is desperately wicked and deceitful above all things. Who can know it? The second thing that we need to recognize is that when Jesus had this confrontation with the devil, this face-off, it was by design that he began his public ministry in this way. For 30 years, Jesus largely lived in obscurity. If you look at his life, how many glimpses of it do we have? We know about his birth. We see him at the age of 12. We don't hear anything else until 30 years of age. He comes on the scene at the Jordan River. In fact, when he goes back to Nazareth and goes into the synagogue and takes the scroll to read and and the, the, the news about him is being spread, the people of Nazareth who lived around him for years are surprised and amazed. So much so that they can hardly get their heads around it. In fact, Uh, Jesus says he he could not do very many miracles there because of their unbelief. And Jesus said a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown. They didn't see him as being terribly extraordinary. They thought about it a little bit. That might have occurred to them, but they didn't. But now all of a sudden Jesus is in the public view. Now uh, he is about ready to come into town announcing the kingdom of God has come. 
He goes to the Jordan River. He identifies with us in baptism. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is about to commence the public phase of his ministry. And what is it that he's going to do? He's going to heal the sick. He's going to restore sight to the blind. He's going to make the lame walk. He's going to cast out the demons. He is going to demonstrate all of those things that Isaiah said will be proof positive of the Messiah. And he's going to demonstrate that the kingdom of God has come. What is the kingdom of God? It is his rule, his reign in the hearts of people. As he ushers in his presence once again, Jesus Christ has come to announce the kingdom of God is here. Before he does, he goes right back to where Adam abandoned ship. He goes right back to the beginning. And he has a face-off in the same three areas. Adam and Eve stood around that tree and they looked at that fruit and they said, Wow, looks like it'd be good for food. Turn these stones into bread. Wow, it's very pretty to behold. Here's all the kingdoms. Would you like them? And you know... The devil said, if we eat it, we'll be wise. Jump off the pinnacle of the temple and I'll make you an instant success and everyone will follow you. The same trilogy of temptations Jesus faces. He meets them one by one. The enemy is defeated. The scripture does not say that was the end. It said he left him for a little while. The devil's not going to give up. But friends, Jesus Face the devil in the same way that Adam did. That's why, he, uh, among other reasons, that's why he's called the second man, the last Adam. He is the firstborn of a new creation. He's about to start this process over again. He's going to go through his public ministry in his lifetime without sin. He's going to go to the cross and He's going to shed His blood for our sins, for forgiveness and cleansing, that we can be made right once again with God. He's going to be buried, but He's coming out of that grave. He's going to rise up in victory and glory and power and be seated at the right hand of the Father, as Paul says. In fact, Paul says, I pray that the eyes of your heart can be enlightened so that you can understand the surpassing greatness of God's power, which he demonstrated when he raised Jesus up from the dead. Why was that such a dramatic thing? I've preached on this subject before, but to remind you this morning, on that morning of the resurrection, the devil having failed at everything else, he knew if he could just keep him in the ground, if he could just keep him dead, he would win. And so you can imagine on that fateful morning, the devil and all of the principalities and powers and every evil force, all of the evil that could be mustered in the universe was gathered in one place at one time to do one task, which was prevent Jesus Christ from coming out of the grave. And he never even slowed down. He rose through them triumphantly, ascended to the Father's right hand. The blood was sprinkled in heaven, as it were, in that heavenly uh, holy of holies. Sin was cleansed, 
Triumph was won, and Paul says to the Colossians, he disarmed the rulers and principalities and put them to open shame. Now, now, we who are his followers, he said, I'm going to give you my spirit. I'm going to put him within you. Just as I have had the Holy Spirit, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit. I want you to go and do the same things I've been doing. I want you to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. I want you to go and teach all the nations all the things that I've commanded you. Baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Explain to them the mission and the message of the gospel. Heal the sick. Cast out demons. Those who are lame, restore their, their, their walking. And those who are blind, give them sight. Do the things that I have done. Reclaim from the enemy that which was lost. Recover it. It all started in the wilderness as Jesus began to reclaim the kingdom. Friends, I want you to understand what it is that Jesus was doing in this place. Everybody else has been saying amen. That was just another amen. I got three minutes to get to the heart of the message, which is my conclusion not often you put the main point in the conclusion, but that's where it is. There's three things I want you to really take away from this morning. The first one is, as followers of Jesus Christ, we need to be wary of the world and of its systems. I'm not suggesting for a heartbeat that we go off and be hermits, live in a cave somewhere, and try to get out of the world. That's not what Jesus did. God so loved the world that he sent his only begotten son that he might come into the world. Friends, we are in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. We are to be that salt and light. We are whatever you're calling and mission in life, whatever it is that you do, whatever you're about, whatever your hobbies are, whatever your working is, whatever your interests are, wherever you go, whatever you do, you are to be there as an ambassador of Jesus Christ, bringing salt and light. You may make a difference. Politicians, sometimes God calls people to be politicians. We get frustrated with our politicians sometimes, but God calls people to those roles. God calls people to be teachers. He calls people to be professors. He calls people uh, to work in the supermarket. Even though the institutions lie within the domain of of the realms of darkness, He calls us to bring light and salt and preservative and savor and flavor and illumination into those places with the gentle and compassionate and merciful love of Jesus Christ. Sometimes we tend, we get the idea of militancy and we forget it's the enemy that's, it's the devil that's the enemy, not the people. We need to love the people that God loved and for whom Jesus died. We need to start where they are. We need to love them unconditionally. And then bring Jesus Christ into the midst of that. But never lose sight of the fact that this world is filled with unholy institutions. And, and there, are no, there is no such thing as a Christian business or a Christian nation. There are only Christian people. That's all. And 
to, the, to that extent, we will make a difference. We need to recognize the authority and power we have in Christ and in his spirit. We have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly realms in Jesus Christ. We have been given that place of privilege with him in the heavenlies. Paul said he raised, God raised him up and gave him authority and put everything under his feet, every power and dominion and name that is named, not only here but in heaven. All things are under his feet. And you has he raised and seated with him in the heavenly realms. Friends, when we're, when we're facing temptation, we have refuge in Jesus Christ. We have authority. We're free we are free people. We're free not to be under the bondage of sin. We are able to say no in the power and grace of Jesus Christ. He is a sure refuge and a place to hide for strength. But He is also a place offensively <laughs> to deal with the powers of darkness and the lives of people and to announce the message of the kingdom of God. And finally, we need to understand the true purpose of intercessory prayer. You know, if, if you try to develop a theology of prayer, you're going to very quickly kind of come uh, to, to some logical conclusions that leave you kind of shaking your hand, uh, head and, and, and saying, well, what sense does this make? If, if the only thing that prayer is about is just kind of meditating, what good is that? Why pray? Just pick out a few nice words and meditate. Don't bother asking for anything. You're not going to get it. Prayer, prayer is just meditation. Or maybe prayer means I can get whatever I want. There are people that teach that. You know as well as I do that that's not true. You know how I know you know that? Because you've tried and it didn't work. You've asked for stuff you didn't get. You've asked in the name of Jesus and you didn't get it. You quoted John 15 just like the devil. <laughs> you quoted scripture to back up your position. Whatever I ask in your name and so in Jesus' name I want Whatever. The less noble among us are asking for new cars. The more noble among us are asking that everybody in our family be healed, everybody be healthy, nobody have any trouble, uh, everybody get along, and we have plenty of money to pay all the bills. God does not always say yes to any of those prayers. So you scratch your head and you say, what's wrong? What's, what's the matter? I, I thought I was following the rules. No, you have to read the whole context. Jesus said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Jesus said, I have appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And this is the fruit that you should ask of the Father in my name, those things, and it will be done for you. I put in the outline here, we need to understand why God will not do whatever we want. Would you do everything your four-year-old asks? Seriously. Compare God's wisdom to yours like yours to a little child. Would you give your little child everything they ask for? 
Not if you love them, and neither will God. Why is it that God will not give us whatever we want? Well, because he loves us for one thing. But we also need to understand why he can only give us what we ask for. Now, wait a minute. That sounds like doublespeak. Say that again. God does not give us everything we want. But he can only give us what we ask for. What do I mean by that? Go back to the beginning. Who had authority over the earth? Adam and Eve. They gave it up. Who got it back? Jesus Christ got it back. We now have that authority restored. The idea is that God honors his word even when no one else does. And he will not just jump down here and kick down doors and and, uh, barge into situations willy-nilly. He's waiting for faithful people to invite his presence. He wants to give and do and operate and, and introject himself into the human dilemma by invitation. And so, friends, when you and I pray, and I want to say this, it's just I'm out of time and, well, too much. But when you begin to pray, don't worry about how you start, but pay a lot of attention to how you end. You can go to God and ask for anything. You can go to God and give him your opinion on everything, on anything. You know, God, I don't like the way things are going here. I think you could do a little better job. Here's my idea. That's fine. Start out that way. I mean, just get it out. Get it, get it on the table. Have the conversation. The conversation. And then once you've said what you want, stop and listen to find out what he wants. Ask him, okay, I've kind of got this off my heart. What do you want to do about it? I'm not suggesting a flippant attitude here. I'm suggesting a reverent attitude. Lord, what do you want to do about it? I know you have a purpose. I know you have a will. What do you want to do? Find out what he says. Find out what he wants to do. Get in his word. Study the situation. Wait before God until you have some idea of what it is that he wants to do. And then speak the authoritative name of Jesus. Lord, in Jesus' name do it. That's what he meant when he said in the the so-called Lord's Prayer, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, here's how you pray. You start out like this. Father in heaven... Your name is hallowed and and, and glorious and marvelous, and I worship you and I praise you and I adore you. I want your kingdom to come. I want your will to be done here, just like it is done always up there in heaven. I want it to be done here. That's the way to pray. Lord, you have a mission, you have a purpose. You have a plan. I want that plan to be done here. Prayer only makes sense when we realize that the plans and purposes of God are released 
to work freely when we pray. Now you may think, well, if, if I don't pray, uh, second coming's not going to happen. Somebody's already been praying for the second coming. I just want you to know the, the big strokes, the master strokes of God, people have already been praying for that. Whether you have or not, there, it's already been asked for. Um, and I'm not saying you shouldn't pray for it, but I just want you to know the whole purposes of God's eternal plan are not going to go off the rails because you didn't get busy and get on your knees. But I'll tell you one thing that may happen. Your, God's plan for your neighbor may not work out. God's plan for your family may not work out. God's plan for your children may not work out. God's purpose in your own life may not work out. God has put you in a little spot of the world to be his ambassador. And an ambassador finds out what the mother nation, the parent nation wants to do, and then carries it out in the local scene. And it is our solemn responsibility to find out what God wants to do where we live and ask him for it so that he is free to work in our lives and the lives of those around us. Jesus began the recovery in the wilderness, and we have the privilege of carrying it forward. Father, it's so much this morning. I pray that you would give us uh, ears to hear, hearts to understand, eyes to see. I pray that the whole, the, the global picture of what you're about would come into focus and that we would, with new understanding, face the world as the children of the living God. I ask it in his precious name. Amen.